Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we are going to get an update on the crisis in the Ukraine. And we haven't done a show for a while on this. I think the last one was probably sometime in August, I'm guessing. And there has been so much happening in the region. So I'm very happy to have Dr. Andrew Mikta on the line again. And he is sort of our, become our UK, uh, Ukrainian, Russian expert, um, Eastern European expert. So thank you for coming on the show again. My pleasure, Chelsea, as always. And Dr. Mikta, just for our listeners who haven't heard our other updates on the situation, is a professor of international studies at Rhodes College, and he is also an adjunct per, uh, fellow at CSIS, and he also does a lot of great articles for American interest, so we'll definitely post some of the links to his most recent works for you to read. So we are in, I think it's about a nine-month-long conflict going on here in the Ukraine, and... I know there's different counts of deaths, but um, the one that keeps on popping up is about 5,000 people that have passed away in this conflict so far. And most recently, we've seen a lot of almost near constant shelling in certain areas in Ukraine. So to start off with, what is going on (laughs) lately? I will just open up to that big question. Okay. uh, Well, thank you, Chelsea. Um, Thank you for having me on the show again. Here's in a nutshell, I'm, I'm going to say two things. One is I will use the W word, uh, war. This is war. Um, politicians, analysts, commentators, but mainly uh, political leaders have tried to tap dance around uh, this issue, trying not to use uh, uh, th- that, that word simply because uh, it has very serious uh, implications for what's going to happen in Europe and what's likely to happen in this conflict. Uh, so we've been talking about separatists, we've been talking about uh, civil war in Ukraine, we've been talking about uh, uh, pro-Russian forces. Uh, the Russians, by the way, uh, Vladimir Putin continues to deny any direct military involvement despite uh, massive evidence of, of Russian presence, Russian equipments, Russian special operators and other forces in place. Um, so we have, we have a war going on in Europe now. And, and uh, it, This is the fourth, uh, I would call it the fourth offensive in the cycles of escalation. If you you go back to uh, the original takeover of Crimea, we're now in what I unfortunately anticipated uh, after a brief period of diplomatic activity, uh, Putin has decided since the sanctions have not been lifted, since there's been no political deal that he would find acceptable, and, and we can talk about what he, he would like to get there, he's decided that he is going to go back once again into the military mode. Uh, and the Russians are right now, uh, they, they um, attacked the airport, which the Ukrainians, in Donetsk, which the Ukrainians used to, used to hold. That's, that's gone. They're now um, outside Debaltseve, uh, in, in more to the north of Donetsk, um, the last reports I've seen, uh, about 35 uh, tanks, about 90 armored personnel carriers, uh, 3,500 plus uh, kind of count in terms of how many uh, pro-Russian troops are there. And there's constant shelling of, of, uh, of that uh, city. The second place where the fighting is escalating rapidly is Mariupol. It is to the south. Uh, and it's really on the path to Crimea. If you if you pull out the map of Ukraine and look at what uh, what the situation is like, uh, the, the strike, the attack in the direction of Mariupol is, in my assessment, targeted at building, opening up a land bridge between Russia and Crimea, so that the Russians can 
uh, you know, move uh, supplies, people can uh, move in equipment, can basically have direct access uh, to uh, to Crimea. And what this means, if you look at the map, is that in effect the Russians are positioning themselves to control the whole northern uh, littoral of the Black Sea. Um, if this offense, if offensive succeeds, and I think we are seeing it succeeding, and there's very heavy fighting, but but by and large the Ukrainians are fighting a defensive action. They, they need military equipment. Um, then you will have essentially uh, the, the dismemberment uh, and the breakdown of the Ukrainian state. Uh, there's no way that a country can stabilize its economy um, under these conditions um, of constant warfare, constant uh, fighting. Um, and the Ukrainians have an almost impossible task today. They're, they're uh, trying to reform the state, the state which was uh, corrupted uh, and, and also penetrated by Russian intelligence services and, and Russian military intelligence services. Um, so they're trying to, to right the ship of state, so to speak. They desperately need to stabilize the economy to simply survive this year. Uh, so they're, uh, they're getting aid and they're in negotiations with, uh, with Western uh, lenders and IMF. But most importantly, they have to defend the territorial integrity of the state. And that is not going well. So um, we are probably in the decisive year uh, for Ukraine, 2015, and, and probably we're talking about uh, months rather than the whole year when we will see uh, the shape of the situation on the ground. The casualties are mounting. Uh, human misery uh, is increasing with every day. But what's interesting is that Ukraine has kind of fallen off the radar screen of a lot of uh, you know news, newspaper pages and, and uh, media debates. Uh, it seems to be kind of faded into the background, and I think that's, that doesn't reflect the reality of what's going on there. And I completely agree with you. Um, just looking at the latest updates on the Ukraine, most of what I needed to find, I'd have to find on the Internet as opposed to mainstream media, TV channels, and so forth. And it's, it's very surprising because when you start looking at the situation in depth, you just realize that from a couple of months ago, it's just spreading like wildfire. And as you mentioned, the violence is escalating. Um, there's so much happening, especially in the last couple of days. And it's very surprising that it's not getting a lot of attention in the mainstream media. Um, so looking at this from a couple of months ago, have we seen a lot more uh, troop, Russian troop amp up in the last couple of months? Or has it been a steady building of troops, Russian troops, going in the region? I mean, what's been going on in that aspect? Well, by, by the estimates that I've seen that I consider credible, um, both from the field and, and from the analytical community here in the West, people who write about it, the Russians have gone up from about 7,000 to uh, approximately 9,000 and, and growing in terms of their actual military deployments in the contested territory. So um, this is a very significant escalation. Also, you've got uh, prepositioning of Russian troops uh, around the periphery, around the border. Um, and remember, it's not only eastern Ukraine. I mean, there, there have been um, reports of military exercises uh, now in the, in the Transnistria area, which is um, the runaway province from Moldova. So it, it may suggest to me that we may see an escalation thrusting in a different direction altogether. Um, the, um, the kind of determination that I see uh, on Putin's part to actually find a military solution to the conflict, that is to force the West uh, to accept his terms, 
should be in plain, plain view, I think, to everybody. Because if you look at if you look at the Western responses, uh, I mean, Chancellor Chancellor uh, Chancellor Merkel. Uh, talking, I think, today on the way to Budapest, saying that Germany will not accept any military uh, solution, meaning any military aid going to Ukraine, but that only diplomacy and only economic sanctions uh, can be put on the table. The U.S. is moving closer to actually releasing weapons to Ukraine, either selling or, or, or shipping them you know, directly. Uh, but on the European side of the equation, there's, there's an utter, in my view, utter paralysis when it comes to uh, even contemplating uh, giving the Ukrainians a fighting chance. And let me make one point clear, because there's also a lot of stuff written in the United States which argues, you know, this is the Europeans' problem, this is not our problem, Ukraine has always been under the Russian thumb, so why are we even bothering? We've got other problems to, to attend to. Uh, look, Ukraine has a lot to account for in terms of the mess it finds itself in. I mean, um, Yanukovych was elected in Ukraine. This was not, you know, this was not something that was imposed on them. Uh, Yanukovych was, in effect, vassalizing the Ukrainian state. Um, and um, it came very, very close to Putin succeeding in essentially corrupting and taking over Ukraine from the inside. The only thing that turned this was the Maidan and the, the you know, standing up of the Ukrainian uh, people who are pro-Western saying, no, we will not accept that, because had that not happened, uh, when Yanukovych declined the offer to uh, sign the associate, uh, associate agreement with the European Union, Putin was going to put cash on the table and, in effect, have the Ukrainians then sign onto the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. So, uh, to become like Belarus or like Kazakhstan, in many sense, drifting closer into into the Russian orbit. So when the Ukrainian people said no, I, my, in my assessment, Putin's conclusion was, if I can't have Ukraine outright, I will destroy it. And this is, this is what's happening. There's a dismantling of the, uh, of the Ukrainian state uh, now by, by putting direct military pressure. Um, with this in context, um, the sanctions we've imposed on Russia t uh, to this date they have caused a lot of uh, you know, problems for the Russian economy. They, they're projecting, I think, a, point, a 4% decline in the size of the GDP this year. Uh, add to this the uh, collapse of the oil prices, which for the Russians, it means the, the end of the major source of revenue. Uh, I would argue that the Russians need to have oil at, at least 100 or above to be able to, to generate uh, reasonable uh, revenue to operate their state and, and run their military. So the, the implosion of the oil markets, all of this is create, creating conditions uh, that make Putin believe, in my view, that he's got a very short window of opportunity to conclude this on his terms. Because with every passing year, right, if, if this drags on, a Russian economic situation will, will deteriorate. And also, remember that countries on the periphery, uh, the NATO members, countries like the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, they're, they're rapidly rearming right now. So their, their systems will come online 2016, 17, when these purchases have been finalized and introduced into, into their armed forces. So if, if he wants to get a military solution in Ukraine, it is now. And I think that 2015 is going to be arguably the most dangerous year uh, in Eastern Europe since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and our response has been largely reactive. Uh, I've already mentioned the Europeans, but uh, uh, the president, uh, uh, our president has all the tools he needs if he wants to act. Um, there's congressional support for, um, for assisting Ukraine. 
there's a, a growing there's growing um, you know pressure for actually allowing the Ukrainians the weapons that they need to defend themselves. What's at stake? Uh, what's at stake is essentially the uh, security uh, order, the the entire European uh, structure that we have in place, and the transatlantic security relationships there. Um, there were certain givens that were not supposed to happen in Europe uh, until this war, and and one of them was that you cannot simply use military power just to change the borders. The whole normative structure in Europe is up for grabs. And the most important thing is Putin is gunning for NATO. Ukraine is is, is an important target, but his real goal, uh, in my view, is to discredit and destroy the NATO alliance as a viable security structure. Um, the same, in, in my view, also goes for the European Union, the fact that the Russians are funding uh, you know, various political parties in Europe, that, they're, uh, that they're, they've bought into the uh, economies of Europe. Uh, this is all in an effort to also divide uh, the European Union. Putin wants to break up NATO and break up the European Union to get uh, to to return to a situation where he can deal with individual countries. And if NATO proves unable to reinforce and stabilize the the periphery, if there is a, a crisis generated, let's say in, in a NATO country like like say Estonia, and there is no response from the alliance uh, when when uh, the government of Estonia calls for it, there, a debate begins, is it really a crisis, it's civil wars. If we see something very similar to what we see in uh, reaction to Ukraine, um, then we are in real trouble. Then NATO has no credibility. So a lot is riding on this crisis. And I mean, I've heard some mention this potential collapse of, of Russia's economy and how this might affect what's taking place. But from it sounds like from your estimation, that would only affect the long term of this operation in the Ukraine as opposed to the short term. Um, is that a valid thought to take? I think Putin has determined that he can take the economic pain and that the Russian people can take the economic pain much longer than the West, uh, that the Europeans will fold and offer him an off-ramp on his terms uh, much sooner than he would have having, you know, he would start having trouble with his own constituency at home. Um, so even if there is long-term pressure building up on the Russian economy, even if it happens faster, um, you know, when, when you have uh, various leaders of uh, European industry and commerce and, and what have you and politicians speaking about how we must find some sort of a resolution to this, uh, we need to lift sanctions, we need to end, end this confrontation, um, then I think Putin has a reason to be uh, encouraged. Um, we, we are in a reactive mode when it comes to Russia. We, I'm convinced Putin has a pretty clear idea of what he wants Ukraine to become. He wants a vassalized Ukraine state. He wants Ukraine that he can control. Um, but um, at the same time, we only know what we don't want. We don't want this conflict to continue. But if you were to uh, run the traps and ask people uh, in leadership positions in Europe uh, or in the United States, what do you want the end game to be? What kind of a Ukrainian state do you envision? Because if we allow Putin right now to partition Ukraine, uh, the, 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 the country that will emerge will be unviable. I mean, uh, 75, 70, 75% of all the coal production uh, that fuels, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, coal-fired power plants 
uh, is in Donbass. It's uh, it's now outside of the control of the government. The Ukrainians have to import coal from places like South Africa and and and, and others. Um, they will if if this is finalized, then uh, Ukraine will lose uh, essentially most of its uh, lose close to, close to half of its population, a huge chunk of its economic base. Uh, and it will be a bankrupt uh, state, the kind of black hole on the periphery of Europe. Uh, so um, the consequences of this uh, for the stability of the continent as a whole and, and, and the kind of ongoing, uh, never-ending, failing, failed state and warfare that we would be staring at. Because remember, it, as, as, as the state contracts, if, if Putin manages to complete the, the partitions as, as he might want to do so, then you will end up with with a much smaller, but also much more determined, much more nationalistic, much more patriotic uh, core uh, in Western Ukraine. And uh, I cannot imagine, for example, that the Poroshenko government would survive if it surrendered vast areas of Ukraine's territory, because the very people who went into the Maidan to support him, uh, um, you know, to support pro-Western forces, and then supported him in the election, they would turn against him as somebody who. Uh, fail, you know, to live up to the um, to the expectations that they had. They want a, a, a Ukrainian state. They want territorial integrity preserved, and they want to have a pro-European orientation. One, one more point that's very important: um, the Ukrainians could have done a better job between the last offensive when they lost their control of, of the air and whatnot to this current one. Uh, they spend a lot of time uh, trying to build up political support internationally. And, you know, some of the initiatives that you've seen are symbolically important and, and they're important for the Ukrainians themselves, like, you know, publicly declaring that Ukraine wants to be in NATO, that it's, uh, it's unequivocally rejecting the, um, the um, you know, Yanukovych legacy. But these are non-starters. There's nobody in the Western alliance that would entertain the idea uh, that we can bring in, um, you know, Ukraine into NATO under conditions when you have war going on, because that would be an Article Five, uh, you know, situation right away. So if Putin builds his Novorossiya project, that's the that's the name for the territory uh, that that he he is trying to uh, grab right now, and that's that's as far inland as Odessa, as Kharkiv. Uh, it's Dnipropetrovsk, uh, it's Zaporizhia, it's Kherson, Mykolaiv. It's these, this is the whole area uh, that the Russians refer to as Novorossiya. If he creates this as a province, right, and then has an ancillary strike, uh, let's say in Transnistria, um, which which is now practicing mobilization, and that's the region bordering on Odessa, then you have essentially Ukraine with. Um, a, a crippling uh, economic situation. I mean, as I mentioned, about half of its population gone, about two-thirds of its GDP, um, uh, energy, all, all other issues, and uh, uh, you will have uh, essentially, uh, you won't have a frozen conflict, you will have a burning conflict. Maybe low intensity, but you will have a burning conflict on the frontier of Europe. I'd like to focus more on the Ukrainian side. So, the rebel forces were seeing a lot of videos coming out, and they're clearly well equipped, as opposed to the Ukrainian army. Um, we were talking before we started recording about Ukrainian recruitment effort, and I was wondering if you could tell our guests, or sorry, our listeners, <laughs> you're our guests, our listeners, um, how that is going, and looking at this 
crisis in a whole. I mean, do the Ukrainians really have a fair fight here? Well, they really don't. And uh, again, not all of it is uh, because the Russians are supplying and equipping and, and, and providing uh, air support and using drones to target the Ukrainian military and, and their installations. Some of it is the fact that uh, the Ukrainian uh, military has been a mess. Uh, the, the, this is the legacy of 20 years of uh, corruption, of uh, foreign intelligence penetration. I mean, ask yourself the question why it was so uh, easy for the Russians to take over Crimea. I mean, without nary a shot, total surprise, uh, very rapid execution. Uh, I think it, it, the answer is quite clear. On the one hand, uh, you know, not expecting the move. But on the other hand, the Russians clearly had intelligence assets within uh, within that area that they could exploit very, very quickly. So um, a lot of it is is the fact that Ukraine has been very corrupt and a very inefficient and, and very poorly organized state. And the army always reflects the society and the country that I, that it operates in. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is that since that previous offensive, the third one that, that we mentioned earlier, the Ukrainians who initially were moving forward quite effectively when the Russians poured in more equipment and more military support and more fighters, quite frankly, uh, into, into Donetsk, um, in the process they in effect destroyed Ukraine's ability to control their airspace. And that has staggering consequences on the situation on the ground. Because what it means is that uh, every single time the Russians target Ukrainian forces using air assets and communications and, and, and so forth, the Ukrainians, even if they move, they cannot do counter-battery. They're blind uh, in many ways. The levels of frustration that, that are rising, the kind of uh, morale problem that this will generate. If you're constantly being attacked and you cannot strike back, there's nothing worse in terms of uh, how the military will look at, at its leadership and and the overall organization of the effort. The second problem is, I mean, and I've been arguing that Ukraine needs uh, urgent help in four areas. It needs um, assistance in anti-aircraft and, and air defenses. It needs assistance in anti-armor. Uh, it needs uh, medical assistance and medical evacuation, but, but especially medical assistance. And it needs communications. It, it, it needs to be able to, um, uh, you know, see what's happening on the battlefield. Because right now, if you're a Ukrainian soldier and you're, and you're wounded in combat, uh, your chances of surviving this uh, are pretty dicey. Uh, if you cannot do uh, over-the-air evacuation, if you cannot uh, very quickly get them to medical facilities, um, you're in effect condemned to uh, over-the-land transport, you know, trains, trucks, buses, things like that, even private cars on occasion. Um, so that's, that's one problem. Um, to stop the Russian armor, for example, I mean, in my assessment, the Ukrainians need something like the Javelin system that, that we produce. It's not a very expensive system. It's extremely effective. It's a, it's a you know, essentially fire and forget system that you can train people very quickly to use. And if you remember the Russian experience, the Soviet experience at that time in Afghanistan, when we provided the Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen, we immediately changed the dynamic on the battlefield. Uh, the Javelin would do this. The Javelin would stop the uh, Russian tanks from moving and the APCs. Uh, um, so, um, you know, if we, if, if we have a situation in which the Ukrainians still want to fight, uh, despite the recruitment problems, I've seen some uh, reports that were showing the, the drop of, of people volunteering to go 
because of these fears of, of you know, poor support when they're in the field, poor medical evacuation and whatnot. Concerns growing among Ukrainian mothers about their, their sons going out there. But uh, overall, the motivation is there. The Ukrainians want to defend their own country. And if they do, then giving them military assistance uh, will raise the stakes for the Russians, will, will bloody their noses significantly, uh, and may actually even stop them. But if we don't do this, then there's, there's really nothing on the ground, militarily speaking, that would uh, induce Putin to uh, shut it down and seek a negotiated, negotiated deal. So, um, you know, nobody's talking about sending American troops or NATO troops into Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO country. But I remind people that during the Cold War, we sold weapons to the so-called neutrals. So if we don't want to create a, you know, if, if, if direct uh, grants of military assistance are a poison pill, uh, let's create a credit financing setup so that Ukrainians can actually simply buy the weapons that they need. And let's give them the fighting chance without it. Um, I mean, just today, um, as I was, I was going through uh, some of the news feeds and, 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 and the, the things that I follow, now, you know, one of the leaders of the uh, pro-Russian forces in uh, eastern Ukraine uh, announces that he is going to raise uh, his forces up to 100,000 in preparation for a major offensive. You know, so the, to, to build up this kind of a military force, of course, some of it may be blusters and trying to intimidate people. But if we take it at his word, if you take him at his word, then what you end up with is um, uh, the need to equip this kind of a force. Uh, and that means, you know, that the Russians would have to uh, provide massive military aid uh, on a scale that, that transcends even you know, anything that, that we've seen, seen thus far. Um, if the Ukrainians don't have the means to counter that, uh, they're in trouble. And that was one of my questions. I mean, are we going to see Western help starting to come into the Ukraine or even international help? But as you alluded to at the starting of the talk, um, Chancellor Merkel said that basically Germany is not going to be supplying any weapons or military assistance, that this was purely talks and negotiations that needed to be on the table. But over the weekend, we had talks in um, Belarus's yeah, capital. Yeah, and they collapsed. Yeah, and they completely <clears throat> collapsed. So you kind of wonder, well, the talks, they're trying to talk, but they're accusing each other of sabotaging this and that. So you really don't have talks on the table that are actually going to be productive. So where do you go? Well, let's that? be very blunt. The so-called separatists cannot operate without Russian weapons, Russian money, Russian aid, Russian food, and everything else. I mean, this is, this is very clear. Uh, the whole Donbass uh, region, the Donetsk, Luhansk area, and, and going down towards Mariupol, where uh, the fighting is now taking place for the control of the whole northern uh, part of the Black Sea, uh, this is a devastated area. The rents are not paid. Money is not paid. Uh, so, you know, with this is all being uh, turned on and off uh, as Russian policy dictates. And that's why at the very beginning of our conversation, I used the word war, because uh, we're in this kind of uh, twilight zone. This is almost like a kabuki dance we're, we're performing here. Uh, the West is faced with uh, a country, um, major nuclear power, committing an act of aggression, uh, you know, by other means. We can call it hybrid war, you can call it whatever you want. Uh, but the Russians are deeply in Ukraine and uh, they've already uh, severed part of that country's sovereign territory. 
uh, incorporated it. I mean, not so long ago, I remember following the developments in Crimea, you know, the, the Russian tax system, the, the complete integration into, into uh, the Russian Federation structures. So all of this is happening, and the only response that we have to this is essentially hoping and pleading that we can offer the Russians a, su- a sufficient off-ramp uh, and that he will take it. You know, I was listening to the State of the Union, for example, when President Obama was, was saying that we have demonstrated um, how, you know, rightly ec- to exercise policy through sanctions. We have, we have brought the conflict to a standstill and the Russians are now paying the consequence of aggression. Well, two, two, two or three days later, Putin struck, struck at Mariupol. So a, b- a bit of humility, I think, would be in order when it comes to uh, congratulating ourselves on what we've, uh, what we've achieved. The, the sanctions policy, in my view, has reached its limit. Whether we add more sectoral sanction to it, more targeted sanctions, more whatever sanctions, uh, without changing the balance on the battlefield in Ukraine, i.e. giving the Ukrainian people the ability to defend themselves. They want to fight for their country's sovereignty uh, and independence going, going down, uh, down into the future. Um, and we can help them do that. And in the process, we can restore some balance and some, uh, some uh, quite frankly, confidence in, uh, the, in NATO uh, among the countries that are on the frontier, they're exposed, uh, countries like Estonia, Latvia, and, and Lithuania. These are, these are almost city-states. These are tiny republics that are tremendously ex- exposed. But it's not just, you know, NATO members. I mean, the, the countries in Scandinavia, you know, Finland, uh, Sweden, and, and so forth, these are all in that area of, of Russian uh, escalation. The Russians have increased, I mean, various estimates put it about 400% plus the number of uh, airspace intrusions, airspace violations, the skirting of the airspace that triggers the scrambling of, of the jets. Um, you know, was it a week ago we had a report of an intercept of a Russian nuclear-capable bomber in British airspace over the channel? I mean... This whole thing is, is, is beginning to look like testing the Western response time, testing the Western resolve, um, and we are constantly coming up short because I think there is no political will on our side to face up to the reality of what's going on. And I'm coming back to my initial comment. There is war going on uh, in Europe, and instead you, you read a lot of uh, kind of analysis and commentary uh, in the U.S., uh, and in Europe, that somehow it's all our fault because we enlarged NATO. So mm-hmm. I was going to get to that. There was a really interesting article in Foreign Policy that looks at that, and I, I really want to know your thoughts on this accusation because, so, like you said, they talk about Western promotion of democracy and pro-Soviet, uh, post-Soviet states, and enlargement of NATO, expansion of the UN. Um, you know, as I mentioned, democracy promotion, and you sit there and you think. Okay, so what are your thoughts so, on I mean, that so Chelsea, that this is the West? Chelsea, let me get it straight. So we enlarged NATO into Central Europe. In, in you know, 1999, we brought Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary into NATO in the first uh, tranche of enlargement. And so we enlarged NATO into Central Europe, and as a result of that, uh, Putin attacks a non-NATO country. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with all due respect, in, in the vernacular of my students' generation, you know, seriously, um, this is, this is about spheres of influence, and this is another code word for appeasement. I mean, the, there's, the, there's a certain uh, ugly truth in all of this, um, that when, when you look at how Western Europeans in particular look at uh, Eastern Europe, 
um, and set aside all the rhetoric about democracy, you know, uh, equality and all of that. Uh, it is treated as the uh, as the periphery, and increasingly, it, when I look at Western European responses, uh, I hope it, I'm not right, but it's treated as a disposable periphery. In other words, a periphery that you can negotiate some sort of a territorial deal uh, over, uh, and and uh, you know return to business as usual. Because what Putin has done, especially when it comes to his relationship uh, with. Uh, the German uh, state, um, he has opened the whole question about what what is that relationship going forward? To what extent traditional assumptions about Russian-German relations, the whole German Ostpolitik, right? Uh, even going back to the Cold Cold War era, to what extent that needs to be redefined? Um, and we're I, I, every time I'm I'm in Central Europe, I hear you know various leaders tell me that. Look, for example, the volume of Polish trade with Germany uh, exceeds the volume of Russian trade with Germany. And if you look at the, at the energy sector, then, you know, that's essentially what the Russians have to offer and whatnot. Um, but that's really not relevant, or at least only partially relevant, because the real issue is the, the largest strategic questions about how Germany sees its role in Europe now as the, uh, I'll use it in quotation marks, the economic superpower of Europe. Right, the country that that uh, will have the greatest impact on the direction of the European Union project and and the future of European security and stability, uh, how it sees its role and its relationship with the Russians, as opposed to its um, relationship with the uh, new democracies, new allies uh, that it borders on. I wrote a piece recently, um, not my late last one at the American Interest, but I think uh, about a month ago, about the disappearance of the idea of Central Europe from political discourse on the ground. Um, we are, you know, we're returning to a uh, kind of East, East Europe, West Europe concept with ever greater speed. Uh, if you look at the whole uh, period from the end of the Cold War in 1990, the unification of Germany, and you move uh, to, the, to, to the Ukrainian war, there was this sense of of open enlargement of institutions, of, of uh, free markets, of, of uh, democratic structures from west to east. And that process uh, offered the hope that those security dilemmas of uh, the frontier region, you know, being peripheral to either the east or the west, if you looked, uh, if you looked at kind of traditional spheres of influence analysis, that that would be addressed and would kind of uh, go away. Well, Putin has completely blocked that momentum and now he's reversing it. I mean, it, the whole notion of Central Europe is being superseded by, by this kind of new fault line that's developing. And you might argue, okay, so what's the net result of the end of the Cold War in geostrategic terms? Well, okay, the, the divide between the East and the West has shifted from the center of Germany to the you know eastern, eastern frontier of Poland or the Baltic states. But even that is contested. And this is the biggest, this is the biggest risk of the current situation. We are w witnessing the kind of irredentist contestation of the territory that we assumed were settled once and for all. Uh, I mean, two years ago, if I asked you, can states uh, fragment, uh, be partitioned, and even disappear on the periphery of Europe or in Europe, uh, then people would kind of look at me like uh, I was joking. Uh, well, uh, we are witnessing the fragmentation and disappearance uh, of at least some regions, right, uh, of the Ukrainian state. In 2008, 
uh, on the periphery of Europe, in the Caucasus, we saw the, the uh, severance of, of two provinces of that state, you know, Abkhazia and Ossetia, when they were taken over, in effect separated from uh, the Georgian Republic. So this is a massive return of history, to use this, this you know, used-up metaphor, uh, to the periphery of Europe. And I am afraid that Europe remains unprepared uh, to face up to it, that, that, you know, this whole strategic culture of this postmodern discourse, to use, to use again that, that, that the term, is so ingrained now in the policy debates uh, among leading European uh, states that the notion of traditional hard power conflict almost seems inconceivable. And this is how I read, for example, when Chancellor Merkel says uh, absolutely no uh, moves to uh, contribute to any military solution or military escalation. Uh, well, if you foreclose this, if you foreclose the ability to assist a country uh, on the frontier of Europe from defending itself, uh, then you have, in effect, accepted uh, that the norms have radically changed. So to bring this talk closer to a conclusion, let's just encapsulate what really are Russia's goals right here and now for this conflict, and what does this mean for the region in general? I used, a, I used an expression uh, when this whole thing started uh, in Ukraine, right after, uh, you know, the Maidan uh, and then the Russian takeover of Crimea. And I called it Putin's irredentist project. Um, and I... I and, some people disagree when, when, when I say this, but let me explain what I mean. This is not about a well-thought-out strategy. Um, Putin is a former KGB officer. The country is run um, by a, a, a very kind of close inner circle, but around him. Um, this is not grand strategic thinking. This is building a set of policy assumptions, uh, into Russian decision making, and and all of this is in the context of the the value and belief system uh, and the kind of ideology of what some people call quite openly Putinism. I know it's it's always awkward when you start adding isms to explain what's going on, but um, Putin uh, said at at some point, uh, I think it was in two thousand and seven, if I remember correctly, or maybe a little earlier that the disappearance of the Soviet Union was the greatest geostrategic tragedy of the 20th century. This is a man who was, who was raised in the KGB culture, uh, who worked in Germany. Uh, he speaks German. He was a KGB operative in Germany. Um, he actually matured as an individual, right, um, at the time when Soviet power was at its peak. So for him to see this kind of disintegration of the Soviet Union and then uh, the, the progressive degradation of Russian power must have been a searing experience. So when people say, what does Putin want? I would say Putin wants it all. Putin wants uh, Russia back as a great imperial state. Uh, now, does he have a strategy to accomplish it bit by bit? I doubt it. I mean, I think he's got more of a, of a uh, overall concept uh, and the sense of what his policy should be. Uh, but there is a lot of uh, opportunism in this as well. I mean, he moves where the openings are created uh, or where he sees very little resistance. So when, when people sometimes ask me, what does Putin want? And I would say he, he wants what we allow him to have in a sense. I mean, he will go as far as we allow him to go in, in rebuilding this greater position of Russia 
Um, and I, I don't care if he fancies himself as a new Romanov or he is just, uh, you know, another, another uh, opportunist and, and former KGB uh, operative. The fact is that this is, this is uncanny in terms of historical parallels. This is almost like Russia reemerging once again from its times of trouble, you know, um, and when it was riven by internal dissent and, and uh, um, finally kind of righted itself. Uh, with Michael Romanov and, and, and started re restoring and building them the Grand Imperial Project. Putin wants Russia to return to Europe and to global politics as a, as a great power. Notice also the linkages that he's put in place. I mean, uh, through our own very flawed policy on Syria, I mean, we did an about-face, as you recall, uh, when there was the issue of uh, chemical weapons being used and we threatened the use of military power, then we did a complete about-face and the Russians grabbed it uh, last year and allowed us uh, you know, to save face, so to speak, but in the process they walked right back into the Middle East uh, on, on our coattails. So the Russians are now embedded in the negotiations about the future of the uh, Iranian nuclear weapons, uh, the whole MENA situation. Um, they've signed, uh, th since the sanctions especially, they've uh, pivoted themselves towards China quite significantly um, with very bad deals. The, the energy deal that the Russians signed with the Chinese are, uh, you know, nothing to write home about. But but uh, the Russians have a lot of opportunity here to uh, make our own uh, security situation more complicated, more difficult, and quite frankly, to subvert a lot of the things that we're trying to achieve. And that linkage has been used very effectively. Um, I think what Putin would love to have, this is what I think, what I said was what I think he wants or, or imagines himself to be getting. I think what he would like to have, and that would be the golden price for him, is to discredit and, and force NATO to implode. Um, the North Atlantic Alliance, uh, because it keeps the United States engaged in European security and provides a formula uh, for security uh, cooperation and defense. I mean, we're now talking about returning the alliance to traditional territorial defense functions that we've uh, kind of left uh, during the, the global war on terror, you know, heyday. Um, we're talking about recapitalizing our military to uh, return it to much more traditional functions, not, you know, just counterinsurgency and, and all of that that we did. Um, if Putin can break NATO from within, if Putin can discredit NATO, he, he, he will have won the biggest prize uh, of his presidency. Because then Russia would be dealing with, uh, uh, you know, individual states not linked by a larger security architecture. And when I say subvert NATO, it, NATO would not have to disappear, but it would be hollowed out if we, if we were unable to provide reinforcements and, and reassurances needed in a crisis. And then, of course, have credible plans to deter and defend in the event of an attack. If that were to happen, you know, then Putin has won his biggest uh, prize and he would be then... Uh, from the Russian perspective, a transformative leader, much more so than probably even any of the of the Soviet era guy. Well, I think that is a perfect final say to leave off on this talk, and I'm sure as things progress, which we both know they will, um, we will definitely have you back on the show to fill us in more. And you're always traveling to the region, which you're getting you know firsthand view of what's taking place there. So it's always fantastic and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Have a great day. Bye-bye.